Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. It's, it's frankly one of the most captivating accounts in all of Scripture. I mean, it, in some ways it's a little strange. It has a naked man who lives in a graveyard confronting Jesus. I mean, that's, you don't see that in the, in the Bible a lot. I can't believe I'm getting ready to say this. It, it has the story of pigs committing suicide. That's so bad, isn't it? I wasn't the originator, I confess, but I couldn't resist. It has townsfolk who see that Jesus is God, this man that, that they cannot control, that they drive out, that they, that they chain up, totally changed, fully clothed, healed, in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And people observed it. And rather than say... Who is this man? Please come and tell us. Give us your message. Tell us how you can do that for us. Rather than doing that, these people say, leave. Get out of here. And they didn't do that because they were mad because their pigs were were dead. They did that because they were terrified of Jesus. This story, besides all of that, is one of the most extreme encounters with the forces of spiritual wickedness in the entire Bible. Jesus cast out a single demon back in Mark chapter 1, but... But uh, he cast out single demons in other places in the New Testament. Uh, the apostles do that in, in Acts, but nothing like, like this. Thousands of demons in one man. There's no such account like this in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, this is by far the most extensive example. In fact, are you ready for this? Up until this point which is why it's in three of the Gospels, there has been no other display, this level of God's power over demons, since God ejected Satan and a third of the angels from heaven. That's the last time in the Bible that we see something like what we're, we're, we're looking at today. And, and in fact, there will not be another display of this kind of power until the tribulation whenever God will gather and bind Satan and the demons in, in the abyss, in the, in the pit, and then ultimately he'll cast them into the lake of fire. Before creation, he cast them out of heaven. At the very end of the Bible, he cast them into, into the, the lake of fire. And here is the Son of God in flesh who has come, and he is here, and he is demonstrating exactly who he is. He's God. He's the one that cast them out of heaven. He's the one that will cast them into hell. And he is here, and he is demonstrating that power. He uses this man in that scene, this specific scene, to, to show that. And the demons know exactly who he is. And they know exactly what he's done in the past, and they know exactly what awaits them in the future. And I'll show you that in the, in the passage Mark places it here as a proof that Jesus is, is God of very God. He has limitless power over the forces of hell, over Satan, and all of his realm. In fact, 1 John 3.8 tells us the Son of God appeared for this very purpose to destroy the works of the, of, of the devil. And Jesus is displaying his ability. And he's fulfilling all of that in, in this passage. And he has the power to to do it. And the demons know that he has the power to do it. And the real question for you this morning is, do you know that he has the power to do that? Do you know who he is? Do you know he has the power to deliver you? 
And then do you do you know what what he's promised to do in the future? Now I would outline the passage in in this way. Jesus is Lord over over the demonic realm, over demons, over demonic forces, over evil, over Satan. He's Lord over over the supernatural realm. Natural realm, supernatural realm. And he shows that, first of all, in describing this man, this this man that, that, that he sees, the destructive nature of spiritual wickedness. Here's a man who is who is overtaken, he's overrun by spiritual wickedness. Verse, first 13 verses. Then you see the transforming capacity or the transforming capability of the gospel. Verses 14 and 15. Then you see the fearful effects of unbelief. Verses 16 and 17. And then you see the astonishing influence of a transformed life in verses 18 and 20. We're not going to be able to cover all of that today. It'll be in two sermons. But this is such a significant passage, it, it warrants two sermons, and probably probably many more. We're just going to cover the destructive nature of spiritual wickedness today because Mark labors and belabors the condition of this man to help us to understand how how bad this situation is. So you you understand when you when it's compared to the to the power of, of Christ. Look at verse one. Since they came to the other side of the sea in the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. You remember Jesus is leaving the crowd. He, he goes across the sea. He says they're going to the other side. He goes to the Gentile region. The storm happens in the middle of the night. And they arrive. And they get out of the boat in the country of the Gerasenes. Matthew calls it the Gadarenes. And that's... That's not an error. Um, ignorant liberals will say that this is this is a contradiction in the Bible. It's 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 laughable to even to even say that because there is a seacoast village of Gerasa, and then there is a larger village, a regional area called Gadara. So so it is both. It is the the land. It's of the of the Gerasenes, and it's the the country of the of the Gadarenes. More importantly for us, it's the it's a Gentile area, and you, you can tell that by, we know that, by the towns that were there, and you also know that by the pigs. Uh, Jews don't raise pigs, especially not this many of them. In fact, we're, we're told in the, in the, the parable of the, of the story of the prodigal son, where uh, in shame he ends up doing what? He ends up working with pigs. What a, what a horrible thing for a Jew, and, and, and here they are. And Mark says, when they get out of the boat, immediately the man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met them. And now that's an understatement. I mean, I, I, I kind of laugh when he says that and when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. I mean, this is not like the, the, the hospitality crew. Um, he didn't come running uh, with the intent of welcoming, welcoming them into the community, he came with the intent of, of tearing them limb to limb. Matthew actually says that there are two such men that are in the same condition. But only one of them is important to show that Jesus is the Son of God. He transforms one of them, so that's why the other Gospels focus on this, this one man. He's a very disturbed man, and you can see that from his, from his dwelling. Look at what it says here in verse 2. 
He is a, he's a man. He got out of the boat and immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he, in verse 3, had his dwelling among the, among the tombs. Is, he's, he's a tomb dweller. He's a man from the tombs. That's how he's described. First described, he has an unclean spirit and he's a tomb dweller. Now, we know it's not normal to live in a graveyard, right? You know that. And in Jesus' time, it wouldn't have been normal to do that as well. In fact, this is where the outcasts and the very disturbed people were, were found. I mean, they don't have mental hospitals or, or asylums. So individuals that were, that were out of control were driven out of the, out of the town, and they lived where others didn't. And they lived in the tombs because we think graveyard, we think hole in the ground, and you put the casket in there and put the dirt on top of it, but that, that's not the way it was there. There's limestone caves, and they're large, and, and, and you can get down inside of them. You can actually walk inside of them and put a, put a body in there. And they were carved in the hillside, and they were placed there. They were large like that so the body could decompose. You don't have embalming. They don't have these other things. In fact, you remember one of, the, one of the proofs that Jesus is God is he'll not suffer decay. He'll be in the ground three days and then he'll rise again because decomposition naturally takes place. And so they would put the bodies in the tombs and allow them to decompose. And then after that happened, however long it took, a year or two or more, then, then they would gather their bones to their fathers. You remember that statement in the Old Testament? They're gathering their bones to their fathers. That just meant they went back and they gathered the bones after the flesh and the other stuff that was there had completely decomposed. Obviously, the length of a full body, now it's just a, it's a, it's bones, and they would put that in an ossuary in a little box that's probably about the size of, of the, the pulpit and maybe about, about that high. Bones of a full human being would fit down in there, and then they would put those together, and they put all the family bones to, together. So the, the tombs were large for a, a decomposing process, and some even had a mourning chamber for in the, in the very, be, very beginning. And that's where this man lives. He lives among decomposing bodies and bones, and, and it was disgusting to live there. It's not, not what normal people did. A person who lived like that was a madman. Had a stench. It was isolated. And I thought MacArthur made an interesting point. He said, "Here is a man who is more comfortable with the dead than he is with the living." And the reverse is true. The dead are more comfortable with him than the living are because he's so dangerous. So the town folks attempt to to bind him. Look at what he says about his detention. Verse three. He had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him, even with a chain. Because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to, to subdue him. No one's able to bind him anymore, meaning that they tried. And they tried because he was such a threat. If you've ever dealt with was somebody who is out of control in rage, out of control in a drunken stupor, out of control uh, with some organic, you know, issue, whatever it, it might be. Have you ever seen somebody has had a seizure? 
I'm not saying seizures are demon possession. I'm just saying if you've ever dealt with somebody who's been out of control, it's, it's, it's scary and it's very difficult. And this man was out of control because he's demon-possessed. And, and you put a maniac in a straitjacket so he doesn't hurt himself and others. And this man was, was so dangerous that they tried to put him in irons. And they must have caught him in order to do that. He's not just going to willingly submit to that. They held him down. They tried to chain him. And Mark said it didn't do any good. He, he'd break the chains. He, Luke says he'd break the chains. And then after, after he would break them, he'd be driven into the wilderness by the demons. This man's totally out of control. And the demons have given him amazing strength. I've seen versions of, of superhuman strength. Um, if you've ever dealt with somebody who's, who is uh, hyped up on adrenaline after a wreck or something like that, strength is almost, is almost superhuman. Here the strength comes from the from the demons, and not just one demon, but thousands of them. And no one is strong enough to subdue him. And Mark's point is this man is aggressive. Matthew eight twenty eight says no one would pass that way because he was so violent. He's super strong, he's aggressive, he's violent. They try to chain him, they try to deal with him in town. They can't deal with him in town, they run him out of town. He comes back into town, they tie him down, they hold him down, they try to chain him, he breaks the chains, he runs off. He's a tomb dweller. He's wickedly aggressive. No one would go near him. And if they did, he would, he would warn them with, with his shrieks. He describes his derangement. You get what it says here in, in verse 5. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with, with stones. Constantly, night and day, screaming. Now, I tried to think of something that um, you could relate to. And if you've ever been in a nursing home or you've ever been somewhere in a maybe a memory care unit or, or someplace where, where people don't have their mental faculties, my grandmother, she didn't scream, but toward the end of, of her life, she did repetitive things over and over and over and if you've worked in that, God bless you. Um, you minister the mercy of Christ to people. But certain individuals will, will cry over and over and over and over and, and never stop unless they're tranquilized or, or knocked out. This man's not tranquilized. He's just doing that over and over and over. If you're a parent, you've, you've had a screaming baby. Some of you, we've joked, you'll drive them around in the car seat to put them to sleep. Um, you want them to be quiet. Five minutes. We had twins. And when, when Olivia would start crying, then Nathan would start crying. And then Olivia kept crying because Nathan cried. And then after a while, you're just you're ready to go out of your mind. And Mark says constantly. Not just during the day. Night and day. Not crying like a baby, but, but screeching, screaming. And after about five minutes, you're ready to go crazy. I remember hearing a story whenever we went into Iraq that one of the interrogation methods, because, you know, we want to be nice and cute and cuddly to people who will cut our heads off. At least that's what liberals want us to do. They would actually use interrogation methods of putting people, they use sleep deprivation, and one of the things that they would do would be play Britney Spears albums 24 hours a day to the individuals that were there. 
Now, that'd be torture enough. Miley Cyrus, Britney Spears, you could probably, Katy Perry, you could probably put a bunch of them in there. And that'd be absolute torture for me. But this is what they would do over and over and over. And the demons were using this man's vocal cords to screech, and it never stops. The point is he has no relief. And the fact that it says night and day means that this man doesn't sleep. He's tormented around the clock. And so was anyone within an earshot. It's one of the reasons, no doubt, people drove him out of town. If you've ever been enslaved to sin, you know what being tormented night and day feels like. You never enter sin to get trapped. Sin is pleasurable. It's pleasurable for a season. You enter it because of what it promises to you, a relief or peace or or to feel good, and then it slowly wraps its tentacles around you and you tightens its grip and you can't get away. And when you get to that place, you, you love your sin too much to quit, but you hate, you hate it, you love it, you hate it. It's like a glue trap. You ever uh, seen those glue traps that they have for mice? You know why we have glue traps for mice like that? Because it's inhumane. People believe it's inhumane to, to have a mouse trap that breaks their neck. So they give them glue traps. You ever seen a mouse get caught in a glue trap? You're telling me that's more humane than that? And they're sitting there, they're stuck, and, and, and they're, they, they struggle to try to get out, and they can, and the more they struggle, the more they get stuck. They start with one foot, and then another, and then their whole body, and then they ultimately can't get out and, and they die, I think it's a really good illustration for sin. It promises to serve you with the very thing your heart desires and then makes you a slave to an idol. That's what an idol's purpose is. It's supposed to serve you, but you end up serving it. And then you end up hating it, but you can't get away. Proverbs says it's like a banquet in the grave. You, you feed on what kills you. This man, we don't know how he started, but... But he's tormented night and day, he's sleepless, he's restless, he's wandering in and out of the tombs, in and out of the mountains, he's driven into the wilderness and the desert by the demons, he's tormented. And the only way that he can get any relief from the mental pain is to inflict physical pain on himself. Look at verse 5. Constantly, night and day, he was, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. He's looking for relief, so he cuts at his flesh with stones. Stones are probably shaped maybe like flint, and he uses them to cut himself. People try to numb their pain in many different ways. I didn't do this, but I did plenty of other things. Some drink, some distract themselves with, with work or partying or whatever, and, and some harm themselves. And Satan's goal, no matter what it is, whether it's the whether it's the alcohol or whether it's the it's the self-inflicted, self-inflicted uh, damage. His goal is the same, to destroy the image of God. And you can do that in many different ways. And when the Bible says that Satan is our adversary, it means that he hates mankind because we bear the image of God. And so his goal is always self-destruction. And self-mutilation is one of those ways. Satan gets you to do his bidding for you. And yet you find no peace, only more bondage. That's what this man 
finds. It's also possible that, that this, is a, this is a form of, of uh, demonic worship, like with the prophets of Baal when they cut themselves. It's a sad situation. It's even worse is deviation. Now, I put verse 5 here, but you'd have to go over to the Gospel of Luke to find this fact. When you put them together, it's very clear. Luke specifically says that this man is naked. What a sight. I mean, literally. This man's been living out in, in the tombs. He's, he's dirty. He's got dried blood on him or he's cut himself. He's, he's screeching. He's squealing night and day. He's, he's running. He's chaotic. And the disciples and Jesus encounter one of the most deranged lunatics found in all of Scripture, and he's also a deviant. That's what public nakedness is. It's a perversion. I don't worry, I'm not going to get too graphic here, but, but I do want to make a point. Public nakedness is perversion. This man is a, is a deviant. The Bible not only commands us to be clothed, but to be modestly clothed. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, Adorn yourself with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And there's a reason that Luke says this man is, is naked, and there's a reason that he is. In the Old Testament, uncovering a person's nakedness was a euphemism for immorality. And you probably heard this nonsense that we need to celebrate the human body by exposing it because it's God's creation. Have you ever heard that before? It's ridiculous. You can celebrate it and celebrate it in marriage, not in public. Besides, you've probably looked at yourself in the mirror before. Nobody wants to look at you. You don't even want to look at yourself half the time. And when Adam and Eve sinned, they sought to cover themselves. And God replaced their temporary covering with a more permanent covering of an animal. And after the fall, nakedness is forbidden. It's a sign of perversion, somebody who does that. And the more naked a person becomes, the more shameful it is. Now, I understand you could take that in extremes, and you see that in the Muslim world where, you, you know, you have them dressed in black gunny sacks with just eyeballs. That, that, that doesn't exalt the glory of God either. There's the glory of God in a man and in a woman. There's beauty is to be celebrated and all of those kind of things. But after the fall, God has created the human body to be covered in certain places. And this man is, is completely uncovered. He's demonized. And for us, we start with modest dress, and the farther you move away from that, the further the further you get into, into shame. And, and I would just say that you, being the fact that it's summer, you probably should remember that whenever you go to the beach. This is a bizarre, putrid, tormented person. And when he sees Jesus and the disciples, he runs towards them shrieking. He makes a declaration. In verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, that's important. He's up on the hill, he's, where he's, he's in the tombs, he sees somebody pull in in the boat, he sees Jesus at a distance, obviously the disciples are with him. Remember, there's multiple boats here, there's a bunch of people, more than just Jesus and the twelve. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he starts to run, he's... He's raging, he's violent, and he sees Jesus and the disciples tying up the boat and probably thinks, new victims. These folks don't know they're not supposed to be here. And so he runs down the hill toward them. 
his usual approach. He's screaming, ready to attack. And he gets closer and he gets closer to the people that are there and he begins to be able to make out the faces and somewhere along the way the demons recognize the person that they are approaching is Jesus Christ. And you know the commercials that say you want to get away? The demons have one of those moments. They rush in to do what they normally do with this man to attack, and they get close enough to recognize that this is none other than God himself, and everything changes. Look at what it says. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and then bowed down before him. Rather than attack, they fall on their face, bowing before Christ. Now, I want to point something out to you. For the first time in a long time, this man is subdued. And he's not subdued by chains. He's not shrieking. He's quiet in an instant, in a moment. Not by chains, but by the very presence of the, of the Son of, of God. The Word, which is why the King James translates it, worship is, is where we get the word prostrate. It means to worship, to demonstrate submission, to show respect for someone greater than yourself. They run in to attack, they realize, and they fall. the man falls flat on his face. And commentators said no one could make him bow, no one could restrain him, no one could control him. But at the presence of the Lord Jesus, the man goes down because the demons go down. The demons have control over the man. They're, they're demonized, they've demonized him. And so when the demons go down, that's who's bowing, the man goes with the demons. He's under their power, and they're under Christ's power. And look at what they say. There's a declaration here, and there's also a request. They ran up, they bowed down, in verse 7, shouting with a loud voice. He said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not... Torment me. For he had been saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking, What is his name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to employ him earnestly not to send him out of the country. And the, verse 12, The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the the bank into the into the water. They make a declaration, and then they make a request. The declaration is, "What have we to do with you, Son of the Most High God?" Now, do you remember how the the story of Jesus and the disciples on the water ends? You remember that? They marvel and they say, who could this be? That even Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey? I want you to notice that the demons answer that very question. He is son of the most high God. He is El Elyon. It's an Old Testament term for God. He is, he is, he is God, the higher one. He's the most high. And they, they know exactly who he is. 
And they know he's God. And they also know that because he's God, he's going to judge them one day. Look at what else they say. What business do we have with each other? What business do I have with, with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High? You're God. What, what business? Now, what does that mean? Well, Matthew tells us they ask the question because of timing. They know exactly what's going to take place. Demons are orthodox in their theology. And they know their Bibles, and they're also premillennialists. Did you know that? Did you know demons are premillennialists? They are. I'll show you before the passage is done. They ask, what have we to do with you? They ask, have you come to incarcerate us early? Have you come to, to cast us into the abyss before the time, the time that is in the future? It's what's promised in Revelation. They're going to be bound during the millennial kingdom, during the, the thousand years. What, what are you doing here? It's not time for that. What have we to do with each other now? And up to this, cry, up to this point, demons have largely been left alone. The, the world lies in the hands of the wicked ones. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He doesn't have free reign. You can see that in Job. Even Satan and the demons have to ultimately submit to God. But after they've been cast out of heaven, they're reigning on the earth, and, and in the end they're going to be bound, not on earth, and they're uh, not being able to do their work on earth or in heaven, and ultimately they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. Between those two points, they're going to and fro, roaming about the earth. And here is God coming before that time. And they see Jesus and they say, what do we have to do with you now? You don't ever see demons being confronted like like this in the Old Testament, the prophets confronted false prophets. They tore down altars, but you don't see demons being exercised. You don't see God commanding any one of us to confront demons. And I'll tell you, it's a good point to say, you don't see that in the New Testament either. There are no commands to exercise demons, to name demons, to ask them questions, to deal with demons. You have no power to do that. You preach the gospel and you pray and you put that in God's hands. Um, Satan's a liar anyway. If they would tell you anything, it's probably not true. And to think that you have any kind of power over them is, is ridiculous. They understand the judgment of demons is related to the second coming of Christ, not the first. And now they're being confronted. And this is not the normal procedure. This is not what's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be able to have rain like this until the end. And you can imagine what, what they're thinking running into God. And so they say, what have we to do with you? Have you come to judge us early? The demons know exactly who Jesus is. And they know the time is, is not now. And they know what, what is coming. So they request not to be cast out of the, the region. They request to stay, to be cast into the swine. And Jesus grants the request because it's not the time. It's not the time to bind them. It's not the time to put them into the abyss or abyssos. The demons know who Jesus is. They know the time right now. And they know what, what is coming. And the question that I have is, is to you. 
do you know who Jesus is? Do you know that He's God? Do you know the time right now? The time right now, today, is the day of salvation. It's not a time of judgment that Jesus has come to seek and to save right now. And only Jesus can do that. And do you know what's coming in the future, like the demons do? Do you know that it is appointed that a man wants to die and then the judgment? All three of those questions are vital. They're vital not only for your life now, but they're vital for where you're going to spend all of eternity. Who Jesus is, what is available to you right now, what God is doing right now, what He declares in His Word, the good news is being proclaimed. Today is the day of salvation. And do you understand that you're on a collision course with God? And that same God that is offering salvation to you today, will stand, you'll stand before Him, and He will be seated in the judgment seat at that time, and you'll give, you'll give an account. And that's exactly what these demons realize. And because they realize that, while they can't be saved, they give proper reverence, they bow and worship, they request, they plead, and Jesus graciously grants the request, and I'll talk more about that next week. I want to close with this. Don't fool yourself in thinking that Satan always works this way. It's always this blatant. Don't think that everyone who acts crazy is demon-possessed. But don't think that Satan always acts this blatantly. The Bible says Satan is an angel of light. There are just as many demons today as there were in Christ's time. One preacher said, a lot of times Satan doesn't show up as the demoniac. He shows up in a, in a nice blue suit sitting on a pew of a church or behind the pulpit. Or he makes himself in religions and behind systems of philosophies. However he presents himself, Satan has one goal. John chapter 10 tells us three things. To steal and to kill and to destroy. And he uses sin in your heart to be able to do that. He lulls you. He ravages your life. But there's good news. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil and can deliver you. Greater is he that is in me, finish it, than he that is in the world.